Come here, fellow servant, and listen to me. I'll show you how those of superior degree are only dependents, no better than we, and all in the livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at uh, some more of the writings of, of young Benjamin Franklin. Um, the volume I'm working off of is the, the first volume of the Library of America's collection of Franklin's writings, which um, have mostly his journalism stuff and his early writings up through 75. Um, I think the second volume has some stuff he wrote earlier, but maybe published, uh, like I think, good, like Poor Richard Almanac. What is in the other volume? It's not here. Um, so mostly it's his, it's his journalism. Um, and in the last episode, we looked at uh, some of his earliest writings, uh, especially his Silence Do Good letters, and particularly his uh, dissertation on liberty and necessity, pleasure and pain. I think I talked quite a lot about that. Um, but that was when he was in London. Uh, and now we see his uh, return to America and his uh, really establishing himself in Philadelphia. And so most of this volume actually is this kind of these Philadelphia writings from 1726 to, to, uh, to before he went back to London in, in the 1750s. Um, so this is really him establishing himself as a journalist. So I'm not gonna go through every article here because they're, um, um, you know, most of them are pretty interesting, but it's not it's not necessary to get an idea of what what Franklin's up to in this this period. Um, so, anyways, what do we have here? Um, yeah, let's just jump into it. I think um, one thing is articles of belief and acts of religion. I, I know quite a lot has been written about Franklin's religious beliefs. They certainly evolved over time. He's still quite young. He's twenty two when he wrote this. Um, and it, it establishes a pretty traditional, uh, it's a pretty traditional statement of faith um, for a young Christian man at the time. Um, but there, there are there are hints here of of deism, I so I suppose, like the way he talks about um, uh, God as a creator, endowing people with reason and all that. But in other ways, he's got um, more traditional Christian beliefs, like the belief in um, beings uh, superior to, to man that have a greater understanding of God. Those are like angels, I suppose. And, uh, you know, a variety of, of non-corporeal, non-earthly create creatures, created beings. Um, so anyways, not too much to say about this. It does strike me as pretty traditional. I don't want to make too much of it. It's not, you know, it's not, this is not the article you'd want to read if you want to argue that he is like a a strict deist that may come later in his writings um i remember back as an undergraduate i had to read a book on the founders in religion and ben franklin showed up in that book but i don't i don't have that much recollection of that article although that that short book so um what else oh we got a an epitaph he wrote like a like the kind of like something you would write on a tombstone or something um of course he doesn't have an end date for his life 
So the body of Ben Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and script of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for worms, but the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Um, so that's fun, because does, he does use the metaphor of a printer uh, and a writer and a, and a scholar and talking about his own life, uh, but still showing quite a lot of religious belief. Um, so next we have the busybody letters. Uh, these, you know, might remind you a little bit of the silence do good letters. They're of that same type is that they're, they're, you know, they're articles written to a newspaper. Uh, and these are to the American Weekly Mercury, which he was trying to promote at the time. This is before he started the, the Pennsylvania Gazette and, and sort of working for that. But, uh, you know, so he's writing these articles as a as an anonymous, not anonymous, like a pen name person, uh, the busybody. Uh, so I guess it is anonymous, but, it, you know, and, you know, they're satirical, humorous observations of, of life and of the intellectual environment of the time and basically trying to raise interest for the, for the newspaper and, and make it interesting to read. Now, the history of the busybody is that it, you know, it's, it's a pen name. Um, it's written actually by two people. There's 32 letters altogether um, by Ben Franklin and Joseph Brintonall in the American Weekly Mercury, as I said. And they were all published in 1729, but only like eight of them were written by uh, Ben Franklin for sure. We don't know about all of them, it seems. Uh, the Library of America published one through four, uh, five, and eight, maybe? Yeah, eight. So. Um, there's, they're saying the eighth one here is by Ben Franklin as well, but apparently there's some debate about that. Um, but probably by, by him anyways. Um, I'm thinking of actually reading these cause I couldn't find a library, uh, or a LibriVox version of these. They have the silence do good letters in LibriVox, but there's not one of these. So I was thinking about maybe reading those as I did the, the dissertation on liberty and necessity. Uh, but I'm not sure yet if I will. Now, the Sister Do Good Letters, or Silence Do Good, sorry, the Silence Do Good Letters are much more about, like, social life. And, like, of course, he's pretending to be a woman, so he's got issues of gender um, explored in there. But it's much more about observations of life, fashion, uh, habits, things that are popular. It's more like that. The Busybody is more presented as, like, literary commentary and scholarly commentary. Uh, for instance, in the first letter, we have "'Tis certain that no country in the world produces naturally finer spirits than ours, men of genius of every kind of science, and capable of acquiring to perfection every qualification that is in esteem among mankind. But as few here have the advantage of good books, for wants of which good conversation are still more scarce, it would doubtless have been very acceptable to your readers if, instead of an old, out-of-date articles from Muscovy or Hungary, you had entertained them with some well-chosen extract from a good author." This I shall sometimes do when I happen to have nothing of my own to say that I think of more consequence. Sometimes I propose to deliver lectures on morality or philosophy, and because I'm naturally inclined to be meddling with things that don't concern me, perhaps I may sometimes talk politics. And if I can by any means furnish out a weekly entertainment for the public that will give a rational diversion and at the same time be instructive to readers, I shall think my leisure hours well employed. And if you publish this, I hereby invite all ingenious gentlemen to my assistant and correspondence. So he's presenting himself more as a, 
as someone trying to promote American letters and philosophy and thinking. But nonetheless, they're not nearly as compelling to me as the, as the silence do-good letters, um, which are both most interesting in a personal sense and I think in their content than these, which are much more rooted in, I guess, philosophy. You know, there's a lot of talk about truth and philosophy and, 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 and scholarship and constitutions and ancient history and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it does show the range, I think, of Ben Franklin's like learning and, and, and knowledge. So there, there may be worth checking out. Um, much more interesting for me is the next thing we have here, which is a modest inquiry into the nature and necessity of a paper currency. This was written in 1729. And this was apparently just self-published. It was printed in 1729 by the new printing office. So apparently he just went out and printed it privately and, and distributed it. I'm not sure how many copies. But it's, it's a doozy um, because if you have studied, like, if you took, like, basic economics, you know, uh, there's a lot here that I think will sound familiar to you. And it shows him quite, uh, you know, I don't know who else was arguing for paper currencies at the time. I know this was still the era of, of metallic currency. And, and not long after you had, like, Newton and the Mint, right? Newton, I think Newton may have just died at this point. He was, of course, the head of the Mint, and he was all about establishing a much more sound currency. I talked all about this when I did the Neil Stevenson series, The Broke Cycle. Um, but, you know, here he's making a case for a paper currency for the colonies, and he, we know he tries to establish one later in his career, um, and he, he thought that was important for commerce. Now, what's his argument here? Because I, I know there's still a lot of people who who don't have that faith in paper currency and, and believe in things like cryptos or gold uh, even um, and say, no, paper currency is no good. Well, essentially, it's it's again, it's this argument you get in, um, in in economics when you take it. It's that if you have too little money in circulation and you have uh, you're expanding goods and services, prices will go down, money will be scarce, and that will be a restraint on commerce. It'll also raise interest rates because the price of money will go up, just basic supply and demand there. Uh, the interest rates go up. And if interest rates go up, people will be content to invest their money in usury, right? Because if you got a return of investment of 5% of in trade or an 8% in land or you know maybe even 10% in a factory, whatever it might be, some kind of manufacturing, if you're getting 15% on usury, that's where you'll put your money, right? You won't invest in those other things. So Ben Franklin's saying, if you want to encourage people to do those kinds of activities, you're going to need to have a, a a lot of money. And in a, I guess, a Boolean poor place like the United States. Well, it wasn't the United States at the time, right? The Americas, the American colonies. But in a place without the boolean uh you're going to have really money will be very expensive um so if you want to encourage people to do commerce you're going to have to keep interest rates low and the best way to do that is a paper currency and controlling the supply of money that will keep interest rates low and it'll encourage people then to invest in things that will have a higher rate of return and that's essentially his argument um for it and then he goes into a lot of detail about it, but I think that heart of the argument that if you, the more money you have in circulation, of course, inflation has its own costs, but he says that cost is worth bearing for the other benefits we get. 
he also makes arguments about wages here that essentially inflating the currency will increase the number of people who want to come to the region because they'll get higher wages than they would in a in a in a boolean economy it will also encourage imports um, because people would get a you know it could raise prices for things and the cost of borrowing money to buy those things would be less so it would just all around be a good thing for for economic activity and i think these arguments still hold um uh, i remember hearing where did i read this was this in I read about this experiment. I forget what book or maybe it was an article I read it in, but there was an example of a of a group of people who started like a uh, it was like a babysitting co-op, and they gave like pieces of paper, which was supposed to be like babysitting currency. It represented one hour of babysitting, and you could trade it, right? So, if one group of parents needed a babysitter for two hours, they could give two of the coupons to someone else, and it created a little bit of an economy amongst this little cooperative the problem was no one was spending it everyone had just had like five tickets to start with and no one wanted to spend that they wanted to save them for if they needed needed in the future and so the and no one was using it so the solution was to basically give everyone like 20 tickets then people didn't feel the need to hoard them and they were more willing to spend them and it's basically that's the heart of ben franklin's argument here is is um paper currency will just increase increase the currency of money right so, yeah, I think it holds up. I think there's not much here I'm, I'm very critical of in the, in the article itself. I think it, you know, it's still an argument for inflating currency to increase economic activity. Um, you know, he doesn't say, you know, he's not promoting like hyperinflation or something. He is promoting a reasoned, you know, use of paper currency. But this is a time when paper currency was not that popular certainly not in England. And of course, we know from later in colonial history when, you know, the American colonies tried to promote paper currency, then they were, you know, slapped down by the British. There were laws passed against forming colonial scripts and all that. And of course, eventually the United States would embrace paper money, especially during the Civil War, um, because it just created more flexibility for the government to, to spend uh, at times of need. So, um, yeah, I'm on the side of, of, of paper currency as well um, for these reasons. So uh, what else do we have here? So then we have a whole bunch of like of his journalism, especially for the Pennsylvania Gazette. So the story, of course, is this this newspaper existed prior to uh, Ben Franklin. It was first published in 1728 um, and it was sold when the owner uh, Samuel Keemer uh, had money troubles. He left to the Caribbean or something, and he sold the newspaper to Ben Franklin. Um, at least he was a partial owner, anyways. And um, so he printed this paper, and he also was a major con contributor. So he's doing a lot of journalism as well as doing like editorial commentary and things like that. And this would be also where he would publish many of his um, findings. Like Poor Richard was published here i think some of his scientific findings were printed here and, and the vast majority of of what ben franklin wrote was essentially self-published because he owned the newspaper now, does that count as self-publishing if you're in a sense it does right I, I think that's fair to say tell me if i'm wrong about that but it, it strikes me that if you own the thing even if it's professionally done there's no reason self-published things can't be professional it's um 
uh, yeah, I'm going to say this is this stuff's all self-published, but that doesn't mean it's that's not a criticism of it. It's just you know, uh, Ben Franklin didn't have to go and sell his work to others. He just had to he could print what he wanted essentially as the owner. So that's what we get here. Um, some really great stuff. One I really enjoyed reading was the, his reportage on the trial and reprieve of of two men, Proust and Mitchell. Very emotional. Very. Uh, I mean, this could make a movie. You know, they could make a movie about this trial because it is kind of dramatic. Um, these were two thieves. Uh, so here's the story. Um, it appeared by the king's evidence that Proust entered the house of Mr. Sheed, barber, in Front Street, and there broke open the desk, and once he took seven pounds, ten shillings in paper money, and some copper halfpence, and that Mitchell, in the meantime, waited without to watch. It was proved that the money lost was found upon Proust, and he was taken, who only said in his defense at the bar that it was given to him by Mr. Sheed's man to keep Mitchell in his defense and said he had been uh, out in company with Proust and other servants drinking rum. Blah, blah, blah. So that's essentially the facts of the case. And they're both found guilty. And and this was a time, you know, British law at the time was pretty hard on criminals. Read uh, Peter Linebaugh's The London Hanged for this, for this, uh, the, the deep analysis, the deep, rich analysis of capital punishment in England at the time. But it's true in the colonies as well. And so they're sentenced to die for this. Um, and then we get, like, it actually leads up to their execution date. It's a very, very dramatic moment. They're pulled, dragged out to the gallows. They're, they're ready to die. They even write their confessions and, like, last wills, their, their final speech, where they, they kind of say their, their apologies and, and confess their crimes and all that. But they, were, they got reprieve um, because of some, like, evidentiary reason or something. But there's a lot of drama in this, uh, this reportage. And um, yeah, I, I think this was one of the more uh, one of the highlights that I was not expecting when I when I picked up this volume. A lot of little short reportage that's uh, quite a lot of fun. I uh, like this one. I'll read it the whole thing to you because it's only a short paragraph. An unlucky she wrestler. We have here an unlucky she wrestler who has lately thrown a young weaver and broke his legs, so tis thought he will not be able to tread the treadles for two months. In the meantime, however, he may employ himself in winding quills. That's 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 the whole article. Um, kind of a little case, I, got, I don't know, a lover's quarrel or some kind of domestic dispute or something. Um, but it's that was written on July 23rd, 1730. But a week later, he writes this, Rules and Maxims for Promoting Matrimonial Happiness, which is also rather humorous. It's like a little editorial piece that showed up in this newspaper. And... Um, Oh, what can I say about this? I mean, there's sexist thoughts here. It's it's 18th century uh, Pennsylvania. But some good advice, too, I think, uh, in, in kind of taking things in stride and not taking everything so seriously in, in a relationship. And a little bit of um, laissez-faire in one's relationship, which I, which I think is pretty good advice, right? I think a lot of marriages probably fail because one partner or the other is a little bit too invested in the goings-on of the other. Uh, this is not necessarily to make a case for on itself for non-monogamy or open relationships or something like that, but and certainly that's not what Ben Franklin's doing, but um, you know, if if we're less strict with our partners, we're probably more likely to keep them, I suppose. Um, 
and then also don't come into a marriage with with too many thoughts of what it's going to be that's another thing, piece of good advice so i think there's a lot of nice advice here that even after 200 years is, is relevant 300 years at this point uh, quote, avoid before and after marriage all thoughts of managing your husband. Never endeavor to deceive or impose on his understanding, nor give him uneasiness and try his temper, but always treat him with beforehand with sincerity and afterwards with affection and respect. Um, what's this? Don't be overly sanguine before marriage, nor promise yourself fidelity without alloy, for that's impossible to be attained in the present state of things. Consider beforehand that the person you're going to spend your days with is a man and not an angel, and if when you come together, you discover anything in his humor or behavior that's not altogether so agreeable as you expect. Pass it over as a humane frailty. Smooth your brow, compose your temple, temper, and try to amend him it by cheerfulness and good nature. Always remember that whatever misfortunes may happen to either, they are not to be changed, charged to the account of matrimony, but to accidents of life. End quote. Another great piece of advice, right? Bad things happen in your marriage. Don't make that what the marriage is about make it just understand things happen in life and not everything is about the marriage in the end right so if you have money trouble right that's don't let that destroy the marriage if there's issues with the kids don't let that you know because bad things happen to everyone and i think this is like really really solid advice um now it is gendered it is advice to a woman um about how to be a wife but i think the same advice could be given to a man just as well so i dig it um a witch trial at mount holly is another article he wrote and i want to say here you know when you read this remember we're still at the tail end of the of the 17th century crisis in many ways right i, I don't know the dates we normally give for this but um what's the um what's that book uh the global global crisis I'm thinking of the one by Jeffrey Parker, Global Crisis, War, Climate Change, and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. Um, you know, I think different, there's different historians will give different dates to this, but, um, but generally, you know, into the 18th century is not uncommon for talking about this great period of, of climate change, economic stagnation, population decline, war, and the crisis in political legitimacy. And of course, this is a global crisis. It's not just one facing Europe, although that's how it's traditionally been looked at. Um, uh, yeah, so I think we're still on the tail end of it in a way. Uh, and the, the only reason I bring that up is we got a witch trial here. And don't forget, witch trials were going on into the 18th century in the Americas. And we have one here. It's kind of farcical because it doesn't really, it doesn't end dramatically or anything. It's kind of ends with a ambiguity about the evidence, but they're still doing this kind of medieval style. Medieval, I don't want to, I don't want to use that term to criticize the medieval for this, because of course, witch trials were a modern, early modern phenomenon. But uh, here we go. Uh, the woman accuser being told she did not sink would be ducked a second time. And when she swam again as light bef as before, upon which she declared that she believed the accused had bewitched her to make her so light and that she would be dunked again a hundred times, but she would duck the devil out of her. The accused man, being surprised at his own swimming, was not so confident in his innocence as before, but said, if I'm a witch, it is more than I know, end quote, which is, uh, I don't know if this is maybe sarcastic and satirical in a way, but it might be, but 
uh, if we take it as a real event, it's kind of humorous and, and almost comical. Now, uh, we also have here on the providence of God and the government of the world, which there's no publication date for this. So I don't know if this was just a private thing. He never actually got around to publishing. But it's kind of a follow-up to um, his earlier work, the dissertation on liberty and necessity. Of course, that was arguing for a lack of free will and a more deterministic universe contained in the mind of God and how really nothing can happen without God's will. He's a little or quite a bit more nuanced in this piece where he's um, trying to work out these thoughts with, I think, more of awareness of, of the possibility of free will or maybe, a, you know, or maybe more taking steps towards a more deistic idea of God kind of creating a world and letting it go. You know, of course, you could still have a deterministic universe without an act of God, right? Because God creates the universe and everything that would happen was already in the mind of God. And he does present this idea forward, but he says, well, then that requires that there's really no more God in the sense of an active God. And he's not sure about that. Um, he writes, for instance, in the second place, if you say that he's decreed nothing but left all things to general nature and the events of free agency, which he never allows or interrupts, then these conclusions will follow. He must either at or hide from himself and from the works of his hand and take no notice in all proceedings, natural or moral, or as he must, undoubtedly he is a specter in everything. For there can be no reason or ground to suppose the first. I say there can be no reason to imagine that he would make so glorious a universe merely to abandon it. So he's saying it's not that God created a universe with free agency and just left it to be. Um, so he kind of takes the middle ground here of, of saying there's a God that's active to some degree in the universe. So this is definitely a retreat from his position in, uh, in, the, in his, that earlier dissertation on, on liberty and necessity. So I'll leave that at that. Um, uh, another funny piece here, he's like making a, um, kind of a joke. Um, a certain stone cutter. This is a little bit of reportage, but he feeds into it like a really funny joke. Uh, and I'll just read the whole paragraph for you because it gets another short little article. Friday night last, a certain stone cutter, it seems, in a fair way of dying the deaths of a nobleman for being caught napping with another man's wife, the injured husband took the advantage of his being fast asleep and with a knife began very digitally to cut off his head. But the instrument not being equal to the intended operation, much struggling prevented success, and he was obliged to content himself for the present with bestowing on the aggressor a sound drubbing. The gap between the side of the stonecutter's neck, though deep, is not thought dangerous, but some people admire that when a person offended had so fair and suitable an opportunity, he did not enter into his head to turn stonecutter himself. End quote. So um, the joke there being this widened cutting off the stones, just castrating the man rather than just trying to cut off his head, um, being a stone cutter. Um, so that's, it's, uh, there's a lot of little articles like that, that I really enjoyed reading. So I guess that's it. You get an idea of what he's up to here. Um, uh, no, nothing here I read before, um, this, but yeah, I think that modest inquiry into the nature and necessity of a paper currency is something that really struck me as being right and and 
300 years later, still still right. And there's a lot of nice little articles that were fun to read. So in the next um, in the next episode, we'll take another 100 pages or so of this, which will bring us up to, to the 1740s. So we'll go from 17, so about 10 years, actually, in the next few. Um, are, and it's all journalism. It's all stuff published in the Pennsylvania Gazette, as far as I can tell, skimming through it. Uh, another thing on paper currency. Uh, some stuff really looks interesting, though. So, um, But I'll have more to say when I, when I, when I come back next time. So uh, I guess I'm going to leave it at that. Um, like I said, there's many more articles that you could, if you had this volume, you could read. Um, and normally I go systematically and look at everything, like I did with the Civil War series. But, um, yeah, I'm not going to. Uh, belabor the point here we see ben franklin becoming uh a great writer uh, a pretty interesting journalist and we understand why the pennsylvania gazette is is still a respected like journal in our historical memory not just because of ben franklin's association with it but but actually the content in it seemed uh really engaging and we can imagine people in early 18th century Philly, you know, enjoying picking it up every, you know, every week or whatever. So, um, yeah, that's it. I'm having fun with uh, Ben Franklin, but let me know what you think. Um, you know, as we get to more famous articles by his, we might uh, delve a little deeper into into them. But for now, it's just kind of fun reading these things that I've never really knew existed before. So um, that's that. Uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. No distinction she craves. So we laugh at the great world, its fools and its knaves. For we are all servants, but they are all slaves. And all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant. And all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant. And all in a livery.